Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Delicious Word Sandwich, my dear, dear Quixotes. Tis day two since being resurrected from the dead after my disastrous expedition to Mount Kilimanjaro and subsequently being trapped in this tomb under the library, as if one captured me under a bell jar. Voiced the Kilimanjaro Sandwich. I would have so liked to tell you how my combo of rare steak, peanut butter and smoked blue cheese worked out, but unfortunately I'm going hungry thanks to Bredrick the demon I summoned in an ill-conceived attempt to gain either freedom or friendship. I offered him a bite, and bite he did, then ran off with both a sandwich and my left hand. As a result, I'm a little in the dumps today, danced in mania for a bit due to blood loss, and I thought I'd save myself from starvation by transforming our next book ration, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Not only does this book understand my grievous, isolating pain, but it is also short, and thus will provide for hasty, tasty salvation. So without further ado... Let us begin our second culinary journey through literature. As is quickly becoming tradition, we must wait for the yeast to rise. No trusty sparrows bring news to me as the crow flies, as sparrows never could find their own style of flying, the hacks. But gratefully, the worms have formed on the ground into letters to form some recent articles from the New York Times and the New Yorker. For our first spot of news here in the tomb, we look at the New Yorker recommendation, Blood Water Paint, the debut novel of Joy McCullough. It is a portrait of the Renaissance artist who fought the patriarchy, an article by Natasha Tripathi. Before we begin first, I should mention that I don't think I could have chosen a more pertinent recommendation to relate to the bell jar if I tried. It is about two artists struggling to put their pain of their fight in the patriarchal system into their artistic works. Without further ado, here is the article. Last year, I picked up Blood Water Paint by Joy McCullough, It is a haunting debut novel, which is about the Renaissance painter Artemisia Gentileschi. Gentileschi was an accomplished artist, the first woman accepted to the Florence Fine Arts Academy, and Macarlo's tribute to her is written entirely in free verse. I happened to read the book while travelling. In each city I visited, I picked flowers to place between the pages where Gentileschi deserved the love women so rarely find when telling violent truths. When she was 17, Gentileschi was raped by a painting instructor, who was put on trial in 1612 after her father pressed charges. Women could not do so at the time. That trial forms the centre of McCullough's narrative. We learn how Gentileschi was tortured to confirm that her story was true. But the book also recounts Gentileschi's early years, when she was a promising artist who finished her father's paintings, craved a mentor, and toiled under the patriarchal thumb. A side note here, I personally have some good exposure to the court system, and I will say that when it comes to sexual assault cases and cross-examinating female victims, The defense's argument is very aggressively thorough, so I don't think this is as outdated considering its 1612 setting as it may seem. McCullough began working on the novel long before the hashtag MeToo movement, but the parallels are hard to ignore. The book does not read like historical fiction. 
It teems with raw emotion, and McCullough deftly captures the experience of learning to behave in a male-driven society and then breaking outside of it. As a young girl, Gentileschi feels male gaze is sinking into her back, and responds by adjusting her skirt or leaving the room. A quote from the book. I wish men would decide if women are heavenly angels on high, or earthbound sculptures for their gardens, McCullough writes. Either way, women are beauty for consumption. After being raped by her instructor, Gentileschi's first reaction is to lie on the floor and be swallowed by shame. Her second is to remember the love of her mother, to find strength in the stories of two biblical figures, Judith, who slayed an Assyrian leader to save her people in wartime, awesome, and Susanna, who stood trial after two elders accused her of sexual advances. These two women would also become the subjects of Gentileschi's most famous paintings. As Bloodwater Paint makes clear, the artist's triumph was not surviving the trial, but transcending her pain by putting it into her work. That work endures to this day. And so that is Blood Water Paint by Joy McCullough, recommended by the New Yorker's writer Natasha Tripathi. Sounds like a good delicious word sandwich, my Chiotis. And now, what's this? The worms are spelling out an article from the New York Times. Alas, tis an obituary, but most prophetically, this seems to align with the feminist themes of both Blood Water Paint and The Bell Jar. Betty Ballantine, who helped introduce paperbacks, dies at 99. An article by Catherine Q. Sellier. Betty Ballantine, who with her husband helped transform reading habits in the pre-internet age by introducing inexpensive paperback books to Americans, died on February 12th in Bearsville, New York. She was 99. That's a good run, and very well deserved considering the gifts she has given us with paperback books. Especially, as we're about to find out, Penguin Books. Betty and Ian Ballantyne established the American division of the paperback house Penguin Books in 1939. They later founded Bantam Books and then Ballantine Books, both of which are now part of Penguin Random House. In those early years, the challenge for purveyors of high-quality, inexpensive paperbacks was enormous. At the time, Americans mainly read magazines or took out books from libraries. There are only about 1,500 bookstores in the entire country, according to the Ballantines, who wrote about the origins of their business in the New York Times in 1989. That link is available, my Kiotis. With a $500 wedding dowry from Miss Ballantine's father, the couple established Penguin USA by importing British editions of Penguin paperbacks, starting with The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells and My Man Jeeves by P.G. Wodehouse. I have read The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. I have never heard of My Man Jeeves by P.G. Wodehouse. But that sounds like a jolly good time. Anyway... As befitting a legend of her caliber, this article goes for quite a while and I don't think I'll bore you with all the details. If you're interested in the great legend that is Betty Ballantine, look up her obituary in the New York Times, as it very, very adequately and thoroughly sums up all of her life achievements, and they are many and titanic. And that's it for news, my friends. I won't droll on too much about it because I am hungry. So the yeast has almost risen. Think all we need now is a little advice from the greatest writer of all time, Ernest Papa Hemingway. What you got to say today, Papa? Nobody really knows or understands and nobody has ever said the secret. The secret is that it is poetry written into prose, and it is the hardest of all things to do. Well said, Papa, as you said in a letter to Mary Hemingway. I think this is a very apt quote to attribute to the bell jar today, as Sylvia Plath, as we are about to find out, is one of the most dynamic and admired poets of the 20th century and the bell jar served as a very good starting ground for many readers to be introduced to a raw, vibrant, and truly uniquely striking poetry.
And now time for the bread. A bit of a background on who was Sylvia Plath and the writing of the Belgia. Sylvia Plath, as I just said, was one of the most dynamic and admired poets of the 20th century. By the time she took her life at the age of 30, Plath already had a following in the literary community. In the ensuing years, her work attracted the attention of a multitude of readers, who saw in her singular verse an attempt to catalogue despair, violent emotion, and obsession with death. In the New York Times book review, Joyce Carol Oates described Plath as one of the most celebrated and controversial of post-war poets in writing in English. One wonders if Sylvia Plath would have found finally meeting death as disappointing as Hemingway did in The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Intensely autobiographical, Plath's poems explore her own mental anguish, her troubled marriage to fellow poet Ted Hughes, her unresolved conflicts with her parents, and her own vision of herself. On the World Socialist website, Margaret Rees observed, whether Plath wrote about nature or about the social restrictions on individuals, she let her writing express elemental forces and primeval fears. In doing so, she laid bare the contradictions that tore apart appearance and hinted at some of the tensions hovering just beneath the surface of the American way of life in the post-war period. <gasps> Oates put it more simply when she wrote that Plath's best-known poems, many of them written during the final turbulent weeks of her life, read as if they'd been chiseled with a fine surgical instrument out of Arctic ice. I'll spare you the details of many of the fascinating ups and downs of Sylvia Plath's life. In fact, over 104 books have been written about her. That's as much as I know about. And I'm annoyed that I never got a chance to read her, the volumes of her poetic letters that have been published. So, without further ado, I will jump ahead to the background that is most pertinent to the writing of the Bell Jar, i.e. what is clearly the autobiographical basis of the Bell Jar, and also what was behind the actual writing of the book. It was during her undergraduate years that Plath began to suffer the symptoms of severe depression that would ultimately lead to her death. In one of her journal entries, dated June 20, 1958, she wrote, It is as if my life were magically run by two electric currents, joyous positive and despairing negative. Whichever is running at the moment dominates my life, floods it. This is an eloquent description of bipolar disorder, also known as manic depression, a very serious illness for which no genuinely effective medications were available during Plath's lifetime. In August of 1953, at the age of 19, Plath attempted suicide by swallowing sleeping pills. She survived the attempt and was hospitalized, receiving treatment with electroshock therapy. Her experiences of breakdown and recovery were later turned into fiction for her only published novel, The Bell Jar. In the New York Times book review, former American poet Laureate Robert Pinsky declared, thrashing, hyperactive, perpetually accelerated, the poems of Sylvia Plath catch the feeling of, of a profligate, hurt imagination, throwing off images and phrases with the energy of a runaway horse or a machine with its throttle stuck wide open. All the violence in her work returns to the violence of imagination, a frenzy brilliance of conviction. Pinsky further stated that Plath suffered the airless egocentrism of one in love with an ideal self. Dennis Donahue made a similar observation, also in the New York Times book review. Plath's early poems, many of them offered themselves to sacrifice, transmuting agony, heart's waste into gestures and styles. Donahue added that she showed what self-absorption makes possible in art, and the price that must be paid for it in the art as clearly as in the death. Dictionary of Literary Biography essayist Thomas McClanahan, Thomas, <laughs> sorry Tommy, Thomas McClanahan wrote, at a most articulate, meditating on the nature of poetic inspiration, Plath is a controlled voice for cynicism, delineating the boundaries of hope and reality. At a brutal best, and Plath is a brutal poet, she taps a source of power that transforms her poetic voice into a raving avenger of womanhood and innocence. 
Critic Newman considered the bell jar a testing ground for Plath's poems. It is, according to the critic, one of the few American novels to treat adolescence from a mature point of view. It chronicles a nervous breakdown and consequent professional therapy in non-clinical language. And finally, it gives us one of the few sympathetic portrayals of what happens to one who has genuinely feminist aspirations in our society, of a girl who refuses to be an event in anyone's life. Plath remains among the few women writers in recent memory to link the grand theme of womanhood with the destiny of modern civilization. Plath told Alvarez that she published the book under a pseudonym partly because she didn't consider it a serious work, and partly because she thought too many people would be hurt by it. Indeed, much like Hemingway with The Sun Also Rises, which I will definitely get to when I analyse that book, Plath based a lot of characters quite blatantly on real people in her life. Due to the perception from her mental illness... And her honest opinion, the portrait she paints is brutal, perhaps brutally honest, and cynical, above all. And with that, all of which was from the Poetry Foundation's expose on Sylvia Plath, we can see that The Bell Jar is a feminist work to be reckoned with, as much as it is poetry. In light of all this, and also because I shouldn't burn every ingredient, I've decided the bread to suit this rather dark and psychologically tortured background. Much like the Snows of Kilimanjaro with its dark, kind of burnt-out characters, this time I decided to go with Charcoal Black Sesame Sourdough. It has a surprisingly light, crumb and clean flavour, thanks to the charcoal, that lets the black sesame seeds shine through. This eerily black sesame sourdough is a must-try, apparently. I think it's very suitable, considering that sourdough is often quite a bright and well-loved style of bread, very wholesome, and it's supposed to suit very set values and very set tastes. And much like the protagonist and Sylvia Plath herself, by having this black sesame seed sourdough, it defies also expectations and portrays a very tortured distortion of what we expect from certain kinds of bread. So, black sesame sourdough for a pitch black psychologically tortured book background indeed. But onwards and upwards, onto the meat after this break. And here we are at the meat, or meat substitute. For our delicious word sandwich today, The Bell Jar is a book to be taken seriously, and it has a lot of bite. The Bell Jar is narrated by 19-year-old Esther Greenwood. This three-part novel explores Esther's unsatisfactory experiences as a student editor in Manhattan, her subsequent return to her family home, where she then suffers a mental breakdown and attempts suicide, and a recovery with the aid of an enlightened female doctor. One of the novel's themes, the search for a valid personal identity, is as old as fiction itself. The other, a rebellion against the conventional female roles, is slightly ahead of its time. Slightly. Nancy Duval Hargrove observed in the Dictionary of Literary Biography, as a novel of growing up, of initiation into adulthood, the Bell Jar is very solidly in the tradition of the Bildungsgroman. Technically, the Bell Jar is skillfully written and contains many of the haunting images and symbols that dominate Plath's poetry. Matara commented that the book is a finely plotted novel full of vivid characters and written in the astringent but engaging style one expects from a poet as frank and observant as Plath. The atmosphere of hospitals and sickness, of incidents of bleeding and electrocution, set against images of confinement and liberation, unify the novel's imagery. Hargrove maintained that the novel is a striking work which has contributed to Plath's reputation as a significant figure in contemporary American literature. It is more than a feminist document, for it presents the enduring human concerns of the search for identity, the pain of disillusionment, and the refusal to accept defeat. Feminist critics in particular tended to see in Plath's suicide a repudiation of the expectations placed upon women in the early 1960s. And lo, here is the plot overview. 
Esther Greenwood is a college student from Massachusetts, and she travels to New York to work on a magazine for a month as a guest editor. She works for JC, a sympathetic but demanding woman. Esther and 11 other college girls live in a women's hotel. Sponsors of their trip wine and dine them and shower them with presents. Esther knows she should be having the time of her life, but she feels deadened. The execution of the Rosenbergs worries her. If you don't know, Julius and Estel Rosenberg were American citizens who spied for the Soviet Union about giving radar, sonar, jet propulsion information, as well as allegedly providing nuclear weapon designs. They were subsequently executed. Meanwhile, Esther can embrace neither the rebellious attitude of her friend Doreen, nor the perky conformism of her friend Betsy, both of whom, yeah, whom, she holds as an ideal version of herself that she constantly feels she can never be, not the wildfire Doreen, nor the studious paragon Betsy. She resents both for this, and when Doreen is desperate and drunk on her doorstep one day, she leaves her friend to sleep in the hall outside. Throughout the novel, though rarely directly to anyone's face, Esther's behaviour is selfish, judgmental, jealous, and sometimes even cruel. None of these actions she particularly tries to justify, neither does she take responsibility and she's never, ever the villain in these scenarios, rather always a desperate victim who others push to the edge she already walked. Literary studies describe the reason for this behaviour, and indeed the metaphor of the bell jar, as simply madness. However, I think for one thing, labelling a mental illness as madness is problematic for a plethora of reasons. Hoo-wee, plethora. Language is my butterfly knife, folks. Of course, more accurately, the bell jar and the behaviour represent signs of serious depression. The flip side, and perhaps self-fulfilling prophecy of this symbolism, is that trapped under the bell jar where the outside world is disordered, Esther is alone. Her entire world, really, consists of herself to a point where the mere fact of observing another's life can be construed as an attack on her and her identity. Whew, getting heavy. This is going to be a real dense dish. Speaking of dishes, Esther and the other girls suffer food poisoning after a fancy banquet. Esther attempts to lose her virginity with a UN interpreter named Constantine, but he seems uninterested. I rather liked Constantine myself, and I imagine if Kirsten Dunst ever makes the film she hopes to direct, She'll be very careful about casting him so that he has this that irrepressible charm and those steely eyes that strike through to your soul and understand you and cut all the bullshit. Esther questions her abilities and worries about what she will do after college, as we all do. That being said, she is also very certain she will be accepted into a prestigious literary writing course and is already stressing out about what that path means and what lies beyond. On her last night in the city, she goes on a disastrous blind date with a na- man named Marco who tries to rape her. She immediately clocks the swine to be a woman-hater, and it's brilliantly written in that the prejudice is given away in a very subtle and very real way, scarily so that that only one as alert as Sylvia Plath would be able to detect it. Marco at first, like many a secret misogynist slash nice guy, gives Esther a diamond pin in a pretty blatant attempt to try and swiftly buy her affections. During his later pernicious attempt against her, she quite cunningly throws the diamond pin into some mud, and he immediately scrambles for it allowing her to escape, but not before getting some good blows in and running off and covered in Marco's blood. I'll come back to the significance of this later. With all this on her plate, Esther also wonders if she should marry and live a conventional domestic life or attempt to satisfy her ambition, the comment being by Sylvia Plath that they are sadly mutually exclusive. Buddy Willard, her college boyfriend, is recovering from tuberculosis in a sanitarium and wants to marry Esther when he regains his health. To an outside observer, Buddy appears to be the ideal mate, he is handsome, gentle, intelligent, and ambitious. Personally, I didn't get gentle at all. More deceptively meek. But he does not understand Esther's desire to write poetry. And when he confesses that he slept with a waitress while dating Esther, Esther thinks him a hypocrite and decides she cannot marry him. She wasn't exactly sold on the idea in the first place, of course. 
and he had made a big deal about her being a virgin, hence the hypocrisy, as well as this made her feel all the more out of place and alone. She sets out to lose her virginity as though in pursuit of the answer to an important mystery. I should mention at this point that Esther is in a place where she assumes everything she does is wrong. Esther returns to the Boston suburbs and discovers that she has not been accepted to a writing class she had planned to take. She was so sure that she would be accepted in this course that I think, personally, this was the point of no return, for she was unable to see any meaning within herself and only an external achievement, and here on in, that external achievement was taken away. She had only to look within herself left, and inside, she found herself empty. Instead, she will spend the summer with her mother, who she describes in purposefully little detail. She makes vague points to write a novel, learn short- shorthand, and start a senior thesis. Soon she finds the feeling of unreality she experienced in New York taking over her life. She is unable to read, write, or sleep, and she stops bathing. Her mother takes her to Dr. Gordon, a psychiatrist who she immediately distrusts as a particularly vicious model of male society, for he is attractive, wealthy, and self-absorbed. Pointedly, he forgets previous conversations he's had with Esther and ignores what she has to say in the present. He prescribes electric shock therapy almost immediately, more out of his sadism than for her health. Esther becomes more unstable than ever after this terrifying treatment, and she decides to kill herself. She tries to slit her wrists, but she can only bring herself to slash her calf. She tries to hang herself, but she cannot find a place to tie the rope in a low-ceilinged house. At the beach with friends, she attempts to drown herself, but she keeps floating to the surface of the water. Finally, she hides in a basement crawlspace and takes a large quantity of sleeping pills. Until the very real and vivid end, this sequence is a bizarre read. While it never loses its sense of despairing hopelessness, the methodical planning and then failure of her attempts, one after another, eventually culminated into a pitch-black episode of Wile E. Coyote. It's never funny, but while the beach episode and the slash of her calf carry the gravitas of such dark moments, altogether as you read it, it radiates this weird series-like vibe. It reminds me of how once when old Maddie was not so old in the film days, People, of course, all have their own ideas of what a filmmaker should make. One came up to me once and, in full sincerity, pitched a show in which the premise was the supposed hilarious episodes of a Mr. Bean-like character attempting to kill himself. <sighs> yeah. Let's just say this is the only forum in which I've brought up that idea, and I am no longer taking unsolicited submissions. Thank you. Esther awakens to find herself in the hospital. She has survived a suicide attempt with no permanent physical injuries although the image Plath describes is as if the incident turned her temporarily into Gollum. Once her body heals, she is sent to the psychological ward in the city hospital, where she is uncooperative, paranoid, and determined to end her life. Eventually, Philomena Guinea, a famous novelist who sponsors Esther's college scholarship, pays to move her to a private hospital. In this more enlightened environment, Esther comes to trust her new psychiatrist, a woman named Dr. Nolan. She slowly begins to improve with a combination of talk therapy insulin injections, and properly administered electric shock therapy. She becomes friends with Joan, a woman from her hometown and college, who she has had experiences similar to Esther's. Esther, however, is repulsed when Joan makes a sexual advance toward her. Joan is a fairly minor character, but she stuck with me, so I have a few things to say about her as we go on. As Esther improves, the hospital officials grant her permission to leave the hospital from time to time. During one of these excursions, she finally loses her virginity with a math professor named Irwin. Imagine losing your virginity to a guy named Irwin. Irwin. I hope Plath changed that name for the book. Irwin. Anywho, she begins bleeding profusely and has to go to the emergency room. No coincidence, I fear. You'll notice that between Marco's attack to the slashing of the calf to here, 
that the shedding of blood is used as a transformative motif. One morning, Joan, who seemed to be improving, hangs herself. Personally, I was distraught. I liked Joan. I don't know why, but I did. Buddy comes to visit Esther thereafter, and both understand that their relationship is over. In true Buddy fashion, I really hated him, he comes to visit Esther for self-centered reasons. He dated both Joan and Esther, who both ended up in an asylum. Like any good narcissist with his salt of his earth, he comes to make sure he is not the reason for their madness. Buddy is one of those privileged narcissists who takes everything personally. Esther will leave the mental hospital in time to start winter semester at college. She believes that she has regained a tenuous grasp on sanity, but knows that the bell jar of her madness could descend again at any time. And alas, in the case of Sylvia Plath, who Esther represents in everything but name, it seems the next time the bell jar fell, it would not lift again. Whew. Very dense. Now, on the one hand, I'm considering that in our last episode for the snows of Kilimanjaro, for the meat, I chose a rare steak. And so I was tentative at first for prescribing yet another steak for this sandwich. However, like with Kilimanjaro, this is a dense book but for much different reasons. Whereas Kilimanjaro had very dense themes and content, this book has a very heavy psychological gravitas. And so I decided because of its bloody motifs and raw emotion, as well as its dense content, I've decided that the meat for this episode, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, shall be blue steak, as bloody, raw, and rare as can be. And now for the cheese! Differently to what we did last episode, this time I will be building up to our protagonist, Esther Greenwood, by analysing two other major characters in the book. Well, really, two other major characters to me. First, we'll be starting with that bastard, Buddy Willard. A contemporary reviewer of The Belger once observed that Buddy Willard is a perfect specimen of the ideal 1950s American male. In my opinion, I immediately got American Psycho vibes. By the standard of the time, Buddy is nearly flawless. Handsome and athletic, he attends church, loves his parents, thrives in school, and studies to become a doctor. In short, he's full of shit. Esther appreciates Buddy's near perfection and admires him for a long time from afar, but once she gets to know him, she sees his flaws more so his hypocrisy and the arrogance that comes with assuming one is perfect. In what was considered natural behaviour in men at the time, Buddy spends the summer sleeping with a waitress while dating Esther, and does not apologise for his behaviour. To be honest, when I read his confession, I didn't even realise he had been dating Esther at the time of his affair. Again, she was more concerned with the idea that she was the odd one out for still being a virgin, and hated his hypocrisy yet again, for he oft advocated against premarital sex. Esther also realises that while Buddy is intelligent, he is not particularly thoughtful. He does not understand Esther's desire to write poetry, telling her that poems are like dust, and that a passion for poetry will change as soon as she becomes a mother, like it's just a phase. He accepts his mother's conventional ideas about how he should organise his domestic and emotional life. Buddy's sexuality proves boring. Esther finds his kisses uninspiring, and when he undresses before her, he does so in a clinical way, telling her that she should get used to seeing him naked, and explaining that he wears net underwear because his mother says they wash easily. Jesus. Run, Esther, run. Finally, he seems unconsciously cruel. In my opinion, that's the worst kind of cruel. Effortless cruel. He makes it look easy, the bastard. He tells Esther he slept with the waitress because she was free, white, and 21. Or should I say, free, white, and 21. He acts pleased when Esther breaks her leg on a ski slope, and in their last meeting, 
wonders out loud who will marry her now that she has been in a mental institution. I think we've all met a Buddy Willard in our lives. The thing I hate most is that they think they're thoughtful, wonderful people who deserve unending happiness and then proceed to scramble for the slightest pleasure desperately like rats in a burning corn silo and resent when happiness doesn't come to them as they're so entitled to have it to do. Also, that slight grin they believe is so subtle when misfortune comes your way. Ugh, I hated Buddy. In some ways, Buddy and Esther endure similar experiences. They both show great promise at the beginning of the novel, and in the novel's end, they have become muted and worldly. Buddy's time in the sanitarium during his bout with tuberculosis parallel Esther's time in the mental institution. Both experiment with premarital sex. Still, they share a few character traits, and Esther must reject Buddy because she rejects his way of life. She will not become a submissive wife and mother and shelve her artistic ambitions. Now, let's have a look at your friend, Joan. Esther acknowledges that Joan Gilling, her high school friend, is in many ways her double. Like Esther, Joan dated Buddy. Like Esther, Joan attempted suicide, ended up at the same private institution as Esther. But unlike Esther, Joan successfully commits suicide. Interestingly, one distinct difference between them is that Joan was always popular. She wasn't the outsider, but the cheerleader captain, with model good looks and effortless charm. Indeed, Esther took Joan's depression, at first, as insincere, almost in a how-could-she-be-depressed-like-me way. Joan is also eventually depicted to be a lesbian, which, curiously, Esther finds repulsive, until Dr. Nolan tells her that some women seek other women because of their tenderness, which, considering Esther's experience with men, she immediately understands. So with all of their similarities... What exactly is it that drives Joan over the edge? The realisation that Esther will never return her affections? The traumatic experience of seeing Esther, someone she loves, seriously injured? Or the sheer experience of seeing all that blood? Or perhaps the answer lies in Joan's desire to be like Esther, in her being inspired to attempt suicide by stories of Esther's suicide. Perhaps, or Maddie posits, with all the media attention Esther got, it's a terrible 13 reasons why idea of suicide in which the act gives a sense of some graspable posthumous importance. These questions are left unanswered in the novel's surprisingly haunting portrayal of a relatively minor character. Considering most of the book is autobiographical, one thinks Joan is based on a real person. There's no stretch then to assume that there was a lot on the other side of the bell jar that Plath did not see. Of all things, Joan says that she wants to be a psychiatrist. Whew. I think there's a very distinct reason why Joan stuck with me so much. She just was tragic the whole way through, and an enigma in many more ways. Finally, we shall have a look at Esther Greenwood, the protagonist and narrator of The Bell Jar. The plot of the novel follows a descent into and return from, quotation marks, madness. The Bell Jar tells an atypical coming-of-age story. Instead of undergoing a positive, progressive education in the ways of the world, culminating in a graduation into adulthood, Esther learns from madness and graduates not from school, but from a mental institution. I just finished reading Man's Search for Meaning, before the Kilimanjaro incident, and boy, I am learning more and more how we should all learn and preach that despair is unavoidable, and when it comes, we must take it as a learning experience. Not all meaning comes from despair, but all despair can bestow meaning. Esther behaves unconventionally in reaction to the society in which she lives. Society expects Esther to be constantly cheerful and peppy, even when there's no caviar in front of her. Personally, I really enjoyed her quirky and unabashed love for devouring caviar, even just by itself, like I saw once in an episode of Frasier when they became underworld caviar dealers. But I digress. Esther's dark, melancholy nature, alas, resists perkiness, 
She becomes preoccupied with the execution of the Rosenbergs and the cadavers and pickled fetuses she sees at Buddy's medical school. We're not putting that on the sandwich. Because her brooding nature can find no acceptable means of expression. Society expects Esther to remain a virgin until a marriage to a nice boy, but Esther sees the hypocrisy of this rule and decides that, like Buddy, she wants to lose her virginity before marriage. With you all the way, Esther, and you can go right to hell, Buddy. She embarks on a loveless sexual encounter because society does not provide her with an outlet for healthy sexual experimentation. Plath distinguishes Esther's understandable, unconventional behaviour from her madness. Even though society's ills disturb Esther, they do not make her mad. Rather, madness descends on her, an illness as unpreventable and destructive as cancer. This is indeed extremely well written. You do grow quite attached to Esther. Maybe it's Plath's relentless witty and firebrand poetry or the ease with which one connects with Esther's insecurities, expectations, and understandable derisions of society's hypocrisy and shallowness. When her illness descends, and you understand the pain that she is dealing with second by second, you're with her like a friend sitting by her in the cancer ward. There's nothing you can do or say. It's not something you can fix with a distinct remedy. You just need to be there and understand it, so that they understand that they are not alone. I'm reminded of how David Foster Wallace described what it is to be suicidal. I won't quote it here, perhaps another day. But Wallace writes how it is like jumping from a burning building. The jump is no more terrifying to one that is suicidal than to one who is not. But when you're at that point, the brief terror and pain of the jump is preferable to the constant agony of the fire surrounding them. And really, there's no point telling them not to jump without putting the fire out first. Man, this sandwich is gonna be dense. Largely because of her mental illness, Esther behaves selfishly. She does not consider the effect her suicide attempts have on her mother or on her friends. Her own terrifying world occupies her thoughts completely, trapped in that bell jar, which I have now decided for my personal headcanon that inside the bell jar is both Esther and fire. Welcome to That's Not Canon, folks. Though an experience, Esther is also observant, poetic, and kind. Plath feels affection toward her protagonist, but she is unswerving in depicting Esther's self-absorption, confusion, and naivete. This is such a good book. Please read it. There's a description of the German language Plath puts when Esther's describing why she could never commit to learning the language. I shall read it here because it sticks with you. Each time I picked up a German dictionary or a German book, the very sight of those dense, black, barbed wire letters made my mind shut like a clam. That's just how Esther thought, and it's poignant every time. Ultimately, with these characters, they're all very wounded, torched, burnt out again like the snows of Kilimanjaro, and I'm afraid quite cynical, hopeless characters. A lot of them refuse to see themselves taking part in a meaning larger than themselves, whether because of their madness or they're just their privileged lifestyles leading them to an almost psychopathic level of self-absorption. These characters cannot really see past themselves, and so I have chosen for the cheese to be once again smoked, and once again, very strongly tasting, bitter Gouda. Dense. Dense yet again. Smoked Gouda for the cheese representing the characters of the bell jar. After the break, we will move on to themes, i.e. the sauce, and then the seasoning, and then we'll draw this humble episode to a close. And here we are at the themes. The three great themes are growth through pain and rebirth, the emptiness of conventional expectations, and the restricted role of women in 1950s America. I also added a theme that the book touches on, and is very pertinent to Esther as a character herself, identity. So, Foist, 
We got growth through pain and rebirth, meaning through suffering, as I mentioned before. The Bell Jar tells the story of a young woman's coming of age, but it does not follow the usual trajectory of an adolescent development into adulthood. Instead of undergoing a progressive education in the ways of the world, culminating in an entrance into adulthood, like most heroes' journeys, Esther regresses into depression and paranoia. I guess, madness. Experiences intended to be life-changing in a positive sense, Esther's first time in New York City, her first marriage proposal, her success in college, are upsetting and disorientating to her. Instead of finding new meaning in living, Esther wants to die. As she slowly recovers, recovers from a suicide attempt, she aspires simply to survive. Esther's struggles and triumphs seem more heroic than conventional achievements. The desire to die rather than live a false life can be interpreted as noble, and the gradual steps she takes back to sanity seem dignified. Esther does not mark maturity in the traditional way of fictional heroines, by marrying and beginning a family, but by finding the strength to reject the conventional model of womanhood, which is pretty damn cool. Esther emerges from her trials with a clear understanding of her own mental health, the strength that she summoned to help her survive, and increased confidence in her skepticism of society's mores. She describes herself with characteristic humour as newly patched, retreaded, and approved for the road. Next, the emptiness of conventional expectations. Esther observes a gap between what society says she should experience and what she does experience, and this gap intensifies her madness. Society expects women of Esther's age and station to act cheerful, flexible, and confident, and Esther feels she must repress her natural gloom, cynicism, and dark humour. She feels she cannot discuss or think about the dark spots in life that plague her, personal failure, suffering, and death. She knows the world of fashion she inhabits in New York should make her feel glamorous and happy, but she finds it filled with poison, drunkenness, and violence. Her relationships with men are supposed to be romantic and meaningful, but they are marked by misunderstanding, distrust, and brutality. Esther almost continuously feels that her reactions are wrong, or that she is the only one to view the world as she does, and eventually she begins to feel a sense of unreality. This sense of unreality grows until it becomes unbearable, and attempted suicide and madness follow. Then, the restricted role of women in 1950s America. I feel like this has been mostly touched on, but all in all, Esther's sense of alienation from the world around her comes from the expectations placed upon her as a young woman living in 1950s America. She feels her desires to write and are being completely suppressed by the pressure to settle down and start a family. While Esther's intellectual talents earn her prizes, scholarships, and respect, many people assume that she most wants to become is a wife and a mother. The girls at her college mock her studiousness and only show her respect when she begins dating a handsome and well-liked boy. Ugh, buddy. Her relationship with Buddy earns her mother's approval, and everyone expects Esther to marry him. Buddy assumes that Esther will drop her poetic ambitions as soon as she becomes a mother, and Esther also assumes that she cannot be both mother and poet. Fun fact though, Sylvia Plath did go on to marry and she did continue writing poetry. Alas, the marriage was not very happy, is what I have read so far. Esther longs to have adventures that society denies her, particularly sexual adventures. Ooh. She decides to reject Buddy for good, and she realises he represents a sexual double standard. He has an affair with a waitress while dating Esther, but expects Esther to remain a virgin until she marries him. Esther understands her first sexual experience as a crucial step forward of independence and adulthood, but she seeks this experience not for her own pleasure, but rather to relieve herself of her burdensome virginity. Esther feels anxiety about her future because she can see only mutually exclusive choices, virgin or whore submissive married woman, or successful but lonely career woman. She dreams of a larger life, but the stress even of dreaming such a thing worsens her madness. And finally, identity. 
It's either a double life or no life at all in the bell jar's gloomy vision of post-World War II American society. Because individuals feel compelled to conform to social convention, particularly when it comes to gender roles, individuals either lead double lives, trying to keep up appearances, or they become casualties of, of an unsympathetic society, such as Esther. As Esther's depression escalates, the novel emphasizes her growing sense that she has no self and no identity. That Esther is surrounded by people who have also lost their sense of who they are. Many characters serve as Esther's double or twin because they too have suffered as she has, particularly at the psych- psychiatric institution. And so ultimately, for a source for this delicious word sandwich, as dense and bitter as it's quickly becoming, I have chosen a spicy barbecue sauce. I think this will complement the, the blue steak we've got going, the dense torched gouda cheese, and also... The barbecue obviously symbolizes the pain and cynical kind of nature of being oppressed by society, um, the emptiness of an identity, and I find by making it spicy, it also represents how this book actively defies conventional expectations of barbecue sauce, which is typically a more kind of smooth and while tangy and obviously punchy sauce, it's not supposed to be distinctly spicy. And so by adding that spicy, like the spiciness of this very groundbreaking book, it represents, as best as I can with my limited culinary knowledge thus far, represent the themes of the book. And now we have final thoughts. The seasoning. In the end, The Bell Jar is what I would call an absolute necessary read. If you've never struggled with depression, anxieties, disappointments, and self-doubt, and if you haven't, thank you goddamn lucky stars, This book at least gives you a very poignant primary source on the matter, with a voice that is at once raw and masterful. If you have struggled with these things, I would hope this book, in all its open wound honesty, provides a level of understanding and clarity with what you might be feeling in a way that helps you come to terms with those things and move to processing them. On top of all that, it is, as I've mentioned, the perfect starting point for one's journey into the poetry of Sylvia Plath. As the book rolls out and in like the cold dark waters on the shores of our psyche, with the lyrical, endlessly imaginative poetry that was her forte, as if the crashing waves were foamed with transformative blood. And so, with all the necessariness of this book, and all of its bloody bitterness, I am recommending for the first time in seasoning vegetables. I would say add beetroot and salt, and I'm gonna go out on a limb and say some well-cooked onion. That will complement the steak, the sauce, the seasoning, the beetroot, and hopefully that smoky Gouda cheese. And if you want, in honor of Esther's beautiful passion for caviar, if you have caviar, just chuck it on there. Plenty of room. And there we have it, my Kiotis, the Bell Jar Delicious Word Sandwich, constructed by Old Maddie. Thank you, Sylvia Plath. This most unique sandwich, if we can remember, is constructed of black sourdough, blue steak, as rare as can be, smoked gouda cheese, spicy barbecue sauce, and beetroot with cooked onion, and salt, and caviar if you got it. Hopefully Brederick, that damned demon, doesn't come and steal this sandwich from me. And if I survive the eating, I hope to catch you next time here on Delicious Word Sandwich. Farewell, my quiotes.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.